You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 27. You're talking about putting your buff parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures mate for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. Hey guys, so today's interview is with Mark A. Michaels and Patricia Johnson. They're the authors of Tantra for Erotic Empowerment. You've probably heard of their book. We've got it sitting in our living room table. And we're going to be talking all about Tantra. I'm really excited about this. Tantra is not a topic we've covered on the show before. We're going to be discussing what is Tantra. Some things that you guys listening can go try at home right now to improve your sex lives. We're going to talk about non ejaculatory orgasms for men. We're going to talk about if Tantra can be done in groups. And we're going to talk about some of the biggest myths surrounding Tantra. We're also going to be talking about Patricia's experience masturbating an MRI machine for science. It's not where I thought we were going with this interview, but it's where we went. And I'm really glad we got there. Buckle up, guys. We're going to hop in. All right. So today we're talking to Mark A. Michaels and Patricia Johnson. They're the co-authors of Designer Relationships, are a devoted married couple. They have been creative collaborators since 1999, and their critically acclaimed titles have garnered numerous awards. Michaels and Johnson are the authors of Partners in Passion, Great Sex Made Simple, Tantra for Erotic Empowerment, and The Essence of Tantric Sexuality. They are co-founders of The Pleasure Salon, a monthly gathering in New York that brings together sex-positive people and pleasure activists from a variety of communities. How are you guys doing this morning? Doing great. Doing great. Yeah, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'll, I'll repeat again what I said before we actually start recording here, which is I'm, I'm really excited to have you guys on because the, the two books that we always get referred to for Tantra are yours and then uh, Urban Tantra. So it's, it's actually really awesome to have you guys on, and we haven't yet had anybody to talk about Tantra on this show. So the stars have aligned on this interview. We're really happy to have you. Well, thanks for having us on. So would you just like to start a little bit, I guess, by talking about how you guys got into teaching about Tantra? And if I'm even pronouncing the word right, that'd probably be good. And, uh, and we can go a little bit from there and talk about what Tantra is. And Sure. And yeah, I, I mean, we're not going to get the exact pronunciation because it's a Sanskrit word, but Tantra is good enough. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're good enough, Ralph. Um, I got interested in it during my first marriage, uh, and I picked up a couple of books on it and looked at them and just thought it was kind of weird, to be honest. And, uh, but, but it's sort but the aspect of kind of the, the potential of having just mind blowing sex was something that, that appealed to me and something that I'd experienced occasionally in, in my life, uh, previously. So when the marriage broke up, I, I started, uh, I, I, after going through some kind of early midlife crises and bad dating experiences, I kind of thought, well, I'm going to start exploring this Tantra stuff. And so I went out to California and did a couple of sessions with a teacher there and a weekend retreat that had a little bit of Tantra in it. And I was kind of hooked. And so from there, I just started studying and uh, working on it as, as much as I could with a number of different teachers and also doing a lot of reading. 
So I got interested in it uh, during my early college years, um, where I was starting to explore sexuality and my own sexuality. And I was like having experiences that would happen on occasion that were absolutely mind blowing. And to me, it felt like I, I the world was opening up a window to a world of possibilities. And I thought, wow, I don't think I'm beginning to experience what can happen during sex. So I started reading about Taoism, Western sex magic practices, and Tantra. And uh, for me, once I saw diagrams, it really explained sexuality on an energetic level, not just a physical level that all just locked in and made sense. So um, I, I really uh, became just a casual reader about Tantra and sort of a casual practitioner. Okay. So you, you, oh, uh, were you, so you guys were both into it kind of separately before you guys got together then? Yeah. Well, I would say I was more than Patricia because Patricia had, had just sort of read about it, understood energy in her own body. And I, we actually, after we met, discovered that we were on one of those old uh, listservs together on sacred sexuality. But I had actually sort of studied a lot, taken a teacher training, and returned to New York and gave my first talk on Tantra. <laughs> Which I, I attended in... Um... I remember uh, I invited a few friends and they were all excited. And then one by one, they all chickened out and didn't go. <laughs> and so uh, I, I arrived and I sat back in my chair, my arms crossed. And I thought, yeah, Mr. Tantraman, you know, I bet you just say that because you can't get laid. You know, I was very cynical. Um, <laughs> but Mark showed up with a pile of notes and he really knew his information. It was really refreshing. And we started a conversation afterwards and um, that turned into an email exchange. And at some point we decided to meet over coffee, um, which turned into sushi. <laughs> and of course, at this point I had, had discovered that she was on this listserv and I'd read some of the things that she'd written to the group. And I was like, wow, she really knows a lot about this stuff. And then she and we she'd been asking me questions. And so I was really impressed with with where she was. And, and so we went out to eat. Yeah. And, and I the whole time I'm like questioning, you know, am I hiring this man to teach me about this stuff? And what does that look like? And then I thought, but I really need to know. I really, really know I want to know. And um, so I asked him, you know, what's going on? Are you gonna be my teacher? And I really had, you know, as I say, I, I felt that I, I couldn't uh, teach her much from, from just what I'd read. And also, I didn't, I wasn't interested in doing any kinds of hands-on work with students at that point, or really ever since. And so I, I said, um, I really don't think there's anything I can teach you. I was like, oh boy, well, can we at least be friends? And I said, well, why don't we explore this on a sexual level? <laughs> So that's how we started out, just practicing some of the sexual practices of Tantra. <laughs> it sounds like a Cassie line. <laughs> I mean, there's no better that's way awesome, to get to though. know someone. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's great. So it's something that uh, I'm curious about, and this is it's not not specific to Tantra, but kind of the whole, you know, the, kind of this whole community where there isn't a. Uh, uh, 
an official teaching program for a lot of it. How do you, when you said that you'd taken some courses and become a teacher on Tantra, how do you do that? Like, what does that look like? Like, are there actual programs or how did you, how did you do that? Well, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of a complicated topic. Um, there, there are lots of people out there teaching with varying backgrounds, varying degrees of knowledge and experience. And it's a, it's a buyer beware kind of situation, I'm afraid. So I just looked for knowledge wherever I could find it, sometimes with people who were really great and grounded and sometimes with people who were not. We ended up, for our part, after we got together, deciding that we wanted to get a little bit more of a traditional background and, and grounding in, in the real authentic tantric tradition. And so we found a teacher by the name of John Mumford, who is a Westerner, but who had started going to India to study in the 50s um, and really was one of the pioneers in, in bringing the sexual aspects of Tantra into Western consciousness. So he initiated it as a Swami uh, in the, the see, mid-70s, and um, after that came to America. And so the best of our knowledge was the first time an initiated Swami gave lectures about the sexual aspects of Tantra. Yeah, well, I think that leads great into our, our next question, which is, what exactly is Tantra? Because I think, you know, I, I think it's a word that gets thrown around rather loosely in some of the, the communities that we float in. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when people talk about Tantra, it's, it's about the sex and the orgasms because, you know, that's all sex is about is, you know, orgasms, right? I'm saying that very sarcastically, but yeah, so I've heard, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so what exactly is it? Because I think for a lot of people, there is just a sexual element to it. And I think for a lot of people, they think that Tantra is like staring at each other, looking each other well, in the eyes and I, having sex. I think there's, I think there's a reason for that though, which is, I think, you know, at most of the things that I've been to that have had that label slapped on it, that, that is, that has been what it is. Like it's either been, uh, you know, entirely like sex positions, things like that, or it's been like an entire, you know, like an entire thing on like woo with nothing else, with nothing sexual attached to it. So yeah, no. So I'm curious to hear your guys' definition of what Tantra is exactly. Yeah, well, as you can imagine, it's, it's, a, it's a rich tradition. Um, it is a real tradition. It does have a real history. So when we first started writing about it, we really worked hard to boil down a, a good definition, or at least one we thought encapsulated the whole thing. And this is what we came up with. Tantra is an ancient Indian tradition that recognizes sexual energy as a source of personal and spiritual empowerment. So a lot of people kind of looked at, looked at us when we gave that definition with complete incomprehension, um, but it was the best we could come up with. And I think what's important about it is that it talks about sexual energy, but not necessarily sexual activity. And the idea here is really rooted in the tradition of Tantra, which is that we have, a, we have an enormous capacity, a life force within us that can be framed as sexual. And we can work with that, be aware of it, and direct it the, the more empowered and enriched we'll be as humans. So that's where sexuality comes into it. Historically, there is a ritual in Tantra that is sexual. There are many visualizations that are sexual, but it's about way more than than sex. Um, it's a 
it's an approach to living, ultimately, I would say. That said, I have nothing against folks who, who find a couple of tantric practices that just improve their sex lives. I'm really, really down with that. I think the world needs better sex. So, And that's what attracted, attracted us to it. Right. You know, so. But I, I think once, uh, if any of your listeners decide to start reading and studying a little bit, uh, just a couple of practices can, or shifts in mental attitude can virtually change how you are in the world. And that's just very enriching. Okay. Um, so oh, I've got, I've got a lot of things I want to, I where I want to go with that. So, um, I guess, I guess first is, so when you're talking about Tantra, so is it, uh, when you say it's part of a, because I think people, even when they're thinking about the spiritual end of Tantra, really kind of view it as like a sexual thing. Is it part of like a larger, uh, I guess, structure of beliefs or structure of practices beyond, you know, beyond the sexual energy? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very closely related to yoga. It It's a, a strand within Hinduism it's, and Buddhism. Uh, uh, the Bun tradition of Tibet um, in some some Sikh practices. So it, it's a South Asian spiritual tradition, and it it's rooted in that. It's and again very very closely related to yoga. It's interesting too. I mean, we uh, we I was reviewing our our some of our writings, and this is like our book, uh, the uh, Tantra for Erotic Empowerment, came out in two thousand eight, I believe. It's already ten years and was reading through it, I was realizing that the mindfulness movement was in its infancy at that point. And that also, uh, virtually every mindful, mindful practice has a current of Tantra in it. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So I think one of the questions that sometimes I see people have is whether or not they have to abide by some sort of spiritual rule to be or able belief to, system. Or, yeah, to, to be able to do Tantra. Or to utilize Tantra practices, I yeah. guess. I mean, the thing is, there are, there are definitely aspects of Tantra that a lot of people would re- respond to as being woo or, or new agey or spiritual or Hindu based. But those things are really kind of, um, they're, they're window dressing or they're tools. So, if you talk about the chakra system, you don't have to believe that there are these wheels of energy in your body. If you just think about it as a way of bringing your awareness to different parts of your physical being as, as a, a kind of template, in a sense, rather than something concrete and real, that can give you a much more grounded way of thinking about those seemingly woo things and tantric practitioners or practitioners are empirical and what they uh use and bar i mean really virtually any tool can be used for consciousness expansion but there are many tools that don't work for other individuals and maybe some tools that don't align with their spiritual practices or beliefs their religion and there's plenty of other practices that they can borrow and work with. I mean, one way that we talk about Tantra that can be kind of helpful and, and get beyond that, that belief system idea is to draw on the, on the Christian idea that the kingdom of heaven lies within you. And that's really is about 
as close to an expression of the tantric ideal as you can find. So that it's through going inward that we discover divine. It's not something that's out there beyond us that's higher than us or or that we need to transcend anything. It's if we can tap in inwardly, that's where that's where the the bliss and the divinity lies. There's sometimes I wish we were doing a video podcast because I think Cassie is taking what you're saying incredibly literally. (laughs) Over over here. Uh, Okay, I know you actually had a question. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so maybe in a way people can view it sort of how I view acupuncture. I've been going to acupuncture for years. And my acupuncturist is all about the energy flow and all this woo stuff. And I'm like, I just know that when she hits me with a needle in a certain spot, it works. It gives me the sensation that I want and the relief that I want. So maybe in sort of a sense, you can do that with Tantra. Like it might not necessarily be something that you believe all the woo about, but you're able to take techniques and things and be able to have the sort of uh, results that you're looking for at the end. I think I think there's a lot of things. I think there's a lot of things in life we don't necessarily know why they work. We just know that they work. So, and I, I like that you were saying that you know different. You know, you can. It, it, you don't have to necessarily believe a certain way to follow some of the practices and get some of the benefits. And I, I think on a on a broader note, I think that that's a very nice separation from some other belief systems where it's you know definitely know you have to believe this regardless, like in order to get anything from it. Um, so I think that's uh, I think that's really cool. Another thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that the uh, how deeply rooted the tantric practices are in our own physiology. So it's it's still remarkable. Where uh, I'll read a scientific study that reveals, you know, oh, people who have uh, digestion issues, and also that relates to vision issues. Well, when you go back to the tantric understanding of the the um, power center that is closely re- which is closely related to sight and and this has all been known and studied in the ancient tradition and it's like the science is now kind of catching up to it so there's all this esoteric stuff that when you when you take it out of that culturally constructed you know box that it's in and you look at it, how it works um, from a scientific standpoint, you you find that it's really incredible and, it, and it's effective. I mean, you mentioned eye gazing before, and that's something that we teach as a foundational practice for people. They can, if they're if they're not partnered, they can do it with themselves in a mirror. If they're in a partnered relationship, they do it with a partner. And there are really a number of important physiological and psychological reasons why that practice is so profound. Now, it comes out of a a classical tantric technique. It's employed a little differently in the the 21st century, but there are reasons why it works. And in our writing, we've tried to give as many of those reasons for as many of the practices as as we can. Well, since since you talked about eye gazing, would you like to just talk about what that is for a minute for people who aren't familiar with that practice? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the first practice we ever did together. Um, It's very, very profound. We do it every day to this day, and we don't do it formally. We just find ourselves eye-gazing periodically throughout the day. 
So what it entails is just gently meeting your partner's gaze. You focus on your right eye while focusing on your partner's left eye. So you put your your attention, you're looking out through your right eye and just allowing your left eye to sort of rest. So you're you're giving in doing that, you're giving your left hemisphere a mental task to to just focus on looking. And that is enough to quiet the chitter-chatter in the mind. So the, on that level, we use it a lot to diffuse conflict. When uh, partners encounter conflict, sometimes their first go-to is just to make their case, find their words, state their case, and prove to their partners that they're right once and for all about this. And that's distancing. And what we do if we're... Uh, feeling conflict, we'll call a timeout and eye gaze and silence at first because what that does is it it calms that logic mind, engages the other part of your mind that was active when you fall in love with your partners. So, and it helps you remember and that you're all on a team. And so then, when you've done the eye gazing practice in that context. Um, you can have the difficult conversation and it'll be usually a whole lot easier because you've created a physiological harmony, you've quieted down, you've gotten out of that conflict mode. This is, this is sort of the advanced version. People who, who haven't practiced this, if they're in a, a conflict situation, are going to have a lot yeah. of trouble doing it. You can't start there. <laughs> you have to have a foundation of a practice. <laughs> so what we encourage people to do is make it a daily routine just for a couple of minutes. You know, it may may not be able to do it for more than a minute at first, or a minute can even seem like an eternity, but you especially if you've lost the habit. But if you if you make it a practice and you build it up gradually over time. Then when you have to use it in a more uh, tense kind of set of circumstances, you can. And so there's other reasons, scientific reasons. They've found that uh, your emotional state can be revealed more on your left side of your face. So when you're gazing at each other and focusing on the left side, um, you are picking up the emotional state of your partner and they, by gazing at you, you can equalize your moods. So if somebody's in a high mood or a low mood, just practicing eye gazing can help you uh, stabilize each other. Uh, also, uh, years ago when I was first exploring, starting to explore Tantra, I was in therapy with someone who, in addition to treating adults, specialized in research on infant mother bonding and disruptions. And what she found was that with the first sign of trouble in the relationship between an infant and a mother or a primary caregiver is in a disruption of the gaze. And she actually would do interventions with people to try and address that before problems got worse. And what I realized was that this eye gazing practice, even for an adult, is a, is a repeat and a and a repair for most of us of some kind of, because we all had some kind of disruption as, as infants, right? So by doing this consciously and, and as a practice, we're, we're, I think, maybe even rewiring our brains a little bit. I think this also applies to uh, relationships. So if you are, you probably 
can tell if there's some disruption coming if you have difficulty meeting each other's gaze. And if you pick that up, the best remedy is to just try to meet each other's gaze a little more and a little more, and eventually you'll feel more connected. Okay, so I'm gonna. I've got. I've got one question about this, and then I'm, I'm gonna flow into. But I, I've got to ask the obvious beginner question here. When you say you're looking at your partner's left eye, their left or your left? You're looking straight out of your right eye into your partner's left eye. So that would be to your right. It's straight ahead. So right, right, right. Gotcha. And and you're just allowing the other eye to, if you think about it as sending and receiving, that can help. So you're sending with your right eye and you're receiving with your left eye and your partner's doing the same. So you can also imagine that there's sort of a circuit, a spin, you know, a spin that's happening between you, if that's a helpful way of, of thinking about On it. On a very practical level, it helps prevent, you know, eye dancing, you know, where the eye moves from eye to eye, where people seem like they're shifty eyed. And also, um, there's a, a, a new age current that says, oh, well, you have to look with your left eye into your partner's left eye. And that means you're, you know, because that's the more connected, loving eye. That makes you look at askance at each other. And for me, personally, maybe because I haven't practiced that, it, it, makes, pe- it makes me feel like people are kind of looking over my shoulder. I, I prefer the, the more connected when both eyes are equally engaged. So what I'd be curious, if, if people were just to implement a couple of tantric practices in their lives, um, I'm going to assume eye gazing is one. And so I'm going to tell you how I thought about posing this question, but there may be a lot of crossover here. So I was, I was going to ask you, um, you know, if, if a few practices that you think would be the most, are, are the most helpful for people sexually, and then a few practices that would be the most helpful for people just in general, non-sexually, but there might be crossover there. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, there's there's some crossover, <laughs> awesome crossover, but we can, you know, we can we can manage that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's just say let's just let's just uh, let's say you know the, a few few kind of tantric practices that you think might be the most the, uh, the most helpful for people, especially people who have no idea what tantra is or what kind of benefits it can give them. Uh, so we'll just we'll just make it a general question. I assume eye gazing would be one of them. I'd be curious as to some of the other ones. Yeah, I want to give you a caveat with eye gazing during lovemaking. Because lovemaking, you have to balance your internal arousal and, and then between and reading your partner's arousal or your partner's arousal. So you've got to dance inward and outward. If you have your eyes open the whole time you're making love and gazing into, you know, others, then you are neglecting that internal check-in. So it's totally appropriate to close your eyes from time to time just to get a read on where your arousal state is. And so that makes that dance of intimacy is a dance of becoming totally innerly aware, but also externally connecting. So use the eye gazing as a tool intermittently. Okay. What are, what are a few other practices that you guys think are, are maybe some of the most helpful practices in Tantra? Well, in, I'll go to a sexual one, and then we can we can sort of move back and forth between sexual and, and quote-unquote non-sexual. One of the things that we really encourage, and this is sort of a, a very popular thing within modern quote-unquote tantra groups, is to do what people call giving and receiving sessions, where one partner simply gives 
Um, and it could go into a genital massage, full body massage, moving into a genital massage. And the other person simply receives because there's a really, you know, there's this kind of common tendency in, in conventional cis heterosex of sort of a give and take, but there's not a clear delineation between giving and receiving. And so we, as people generally don't learn either how fully we can give pleasure to another person or how fully we can receive it. So if we take that giving and receiving and separate it out and ritualize it, there's a way in which people can start to explore uh, deeper realms of, of pleasure. And these sessions don't have to be huge, you know, marathons. They can be, you know, 20, 45 minutes. Just make sure you alternate among partners so everyone gets a chance to receive. <laughs> and, and for cis males, this is the context in which it's easiest to learn how to separate orgasm from ejaculation or ejaculation from orgasm so that you can have the full body but non-ejaculatory type of orgasm. The, the process is basically going to the edge again and again and again, and every time you go to the edge, you imagine that you're drawing the energy into your body rather than releasing it out. And that leads into another, um, I, I guess, tantric kind of practice or approach, which I think is really important, which is using the imagination. And for many people, that can be the visual imagination. But if you're not really able to visualize, you can use other things to start thinking about your physical experiences in a different way. Yeah. So if you're more orally uh, oriented, you can imagine a sound traveling through the body or a color of light coming through if you're more visual. Um, there's no right one way to, to move energy or visualize it. I was going to say, are you talking about as a way to visualize? Because when you say imagination, my thought goes to like, you know, like imagining erotic things. You're saying as a way to visualize energy. Yeah. Yeah. But that can have an erotic component. You can imagine, you know, just your erotic energy is this like lugubrious, beautiful, ripe peach that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it just, you know, whatever works for you. Or in that, in that, uh, in that genital massage technique and learning how to have a full body orgasm, if you imagine the ejaculatory energy is as a, a kind of a light that you're actually breathing upward into your body rather than releasing outward. If you can see that and add color to it, you can make that energy, which may seem very abstract and woo into something really concrete. And that, that practice will, I mean, everybody who, who does that will experience some sort of expansion in their uh, orgasmic experience. So. Did we stump you? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not It's not that you stump me. It's that there's so many, like a lot of times we interview people, it's a very straight path. With you guys, there's so many different ways to get to the same thing. It's more, it's more of where to ask the question. So you had talked, you were talking a little bit about um, the, you know, the full body orgasm for men. And I want to touch on that, but I want to get there by going through this question uh, because I think, I think it plays into it, which is what are some of the biggest differences between how sex is approached or sexuality is approached in Tantra and how it's approached in most of the Western world? I think that the big difference is goal orientation. You know, I mean, we, we still, 
it's gotten better. But if you kind of look at sexology and, and the way that they talk about, you know, anorgasmia, and then they shifted it to pre-orgasmic, there's such an emphasis on orgasm as a goal for people regardless of gender. And one of the things about the tantric approach is that it really is about focusing on the experience in the moment and not having a specific goal. Um, it's it's about approaching the the experiences with curiosity, with uh, an experimental attitude, and to see what happens, to see what you're feeling moment to moment. I think a lot of people fall into the trap of hierarchical thinking about their sexuality as well. So um, we've heard of people saying, oh, well, last night we had tantric sex. And it's like, oh, well, you lit candles, you danced, and you anointed each other, and that made your sex different. And what we emphasize for people is that anytime you're aroused, that is innately a sacred state. That's an altered state of consciousness. So virtually anytime you bring awareness to that, you're doing something tantric with your sexuality. So we, uh, we're, we're fans of uh, tantric quickies. You know, we don't need to have three hours blocked out every time we make love. So we encourage people to look at all of their sexual experiences, sensual experiences through the tantric lens. And I think what Patricia's saying, that awareness is so much the key. I mean, I, I was talking about goal orientation, but I think that we, in our culture, we're really conditioned to not be very aware sexually, to kind of, you know, just not talk about it. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary how difficult it is for people to talk about sex or to think about it or to really tune into what they're experiencing with it. And the tantric approach not just to sex, but to everything, is to bring as much awareness to it as we can and to develop this, become skilled with our, our awareness. Like facile, so you can make choices. You can be as hyper-aware of certain senses, or you have the ability to shut them off if you need to. So it's more volition rather than hyper-awareness. So it's, it's interesting when you're saying, you know, you're pointing to kind of the, the focus or the attention or the not being goal oriented is one of the big differences there. I think I, a lot of people, and I'm, I'm including myself as one of these, depending on what's going on, I can have problems shutting my brain off sometimes, even during sex. And am I getting an ugly glare over here? No. Okay, good. So, and also, you know, from a BDSM context, I find that, um, you know, cause I top and I bottom depending on who I'm playing with. And I, I have a lot easier time as much as I enjoy bottoming it can be a lot harder for me sometimes to get into or to focus on what I'm doing, you know, because I have a lot of time to think as opposed to when I'm topping because I'm involved in doing something and I, I you know, I'm, I'm occupied with it. And when you're talking about how that is plays into mindfulness, it's interesting because I've found, so I, I, I meditate. Um, I've, I've been doing mindfulness meditation for a couple of years and I find that when I'm doing that consistently, it does definitely bleed over into uh, sex and being able to quiet down my brain and enjoy what's going on and just focus on what's going on instead of thinking about other things or thinking about what's going to happen next during sex or where things need to go or that kind of thing. Yeah. I think people don't realize, I mean, we're marketed with pleasure, we're marketed with sexy things all the time, but as humans, our ability to sit in arousal and be present with pleasure is one of the most difficult things to do. And it's, it's, uh, conundrum. <laughs> but I, I also want to, I think you're, 
bringing up uh, BDSM is important because I, I really see a lot of the, when BDSM is done well, I think that it's got a lot in common with sexual Tantra in that there's this exchange of energy that's happening. There's, there's hyper awareness on, <laughs> on both sides. There is an altered state of consciousness that comes in, which also is a big part. You know, Tantra, the, the sexual part of Tantra is about the fact that the easiest way that many of us have to have mystical experiences is through sex. And that's one of the great understandings of, of the tantric tradition. And it's why there's a part of it that includes sexuality. And that's why a part of it of uh, prolonging arousal, that's why it seems like it, it can involve marathon sex. Uh, but the, the key and the trick and the purpose is to stay in that state of arousal as long as possible. But as Mark was speaking, I was struck by the irony of um, some, some folks, you know, we t- teach a lot with the BDSM community, and sometimes people are like, oh, yeah, that's just so woo. And then I'll see them later, and they're doing this intense, like, they totally understand an energy exchange in a scene. And it's <laughs> like, no, that's, that's it, you know, and I just, I don't and, know why. You know, subspace, a mystical experience, right? It's not, it's not really woo. It's, it's just a different set of, of words for the same thing. Yeah. We, we just had an episode on religion with Frenchie, uh, sex and religion. Um, we were talking Frenchie a lot more dance. about yeah Western religions, and, and Cassie told her that she feels uh, most, most spiritual when somebody's playing with her vagina. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, I do. I do feel like the most connected. And it's not like me saying that in a snarky way. I'm not particularly a big faith person. Um, I'm not... I guess you would call me an agnostic, um, although I sometimes feel like that's a cop out. I might just should probably call myself an atheist. But I, as far as spirituality, I do as far as when I'm having sex with someone. And now that we're on the topic of BDSM, I definitely do feel without sounding real wooey an energy. You know, there's good, good BDSM energy. There's bad energy. There's sometimes energy that's kind of just bland, you know, like, okay, we got through this scene and it was good and all right, but it wasn't great. And then there's other times that you walk away from a scene and you're like, this was amazing. And it might be the same activity. It could be the same person, but there's a feeling of it. So for me, sexual contact, BDSM is where I feel my spirituality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I liked I liked that you mentioned vagina, you know, and that that it's a gateway to feeling the spirituality. It reminded me of um one of the things our our teacher refers to oral sex as worshiping at the altar of your beloved, you know, beloved's genitalia. I mean, it's like it's to to apply that sense of reverence and devotion when you're performing oral sex um or giving oral sex is just changes everything it just makes it so magical amen <laughs> amen <laughs> and I, I mean i think that also if you look at kind of the primal religions of the world sex was super important in all of them and it's really only sort of later that sex becomes anti antithetical to religion but fertility cults are where it all you know where it all began Going, going on that, uh, I'm, I'm going to, 
one thing that I find very interesting, and we'll just touch on this briefly, but is how women's sexuality and women's pleasure is treated differently in practices, you know, Eastern world versus Western world a lot of times. And if you could just talk a little briefly about how women's sexuality and women's pleasure is uh, thought of in Tantra. That's interesting, really, because a lot of the practices are aimed towards male practitioners. Really? Yeah, and I think that we can't, we can't really neglect the fact that there's a tremendous amount of sexual oppression in, in Asian cultures, too. Uh, I mean, in many ways, I think probably in the modern era more so than in, than in our culture. But having said that, the understanding in the classical tantric tradition was that women were the ones who had the power. Women were the initiators of men. The very ancient forms of Tantra actually involved a kind of spirit possession in which the female practitioners would be possessed by these ferocious deities who then would transmit their power through sex and the consumption of sexual fluids to the male practitioners. So within that, there's an idea that women already have it and that men are the ones who need to be empowered and who need to learn from women. So that's ancient, and it's not the mainstream in, in Indian culture by any stretch. No. But that's in the tantric tradition, the, the way it, it was. And that, that, I mean, that said, some of these uh, ancient practices have translated into modern tantra as being heteronormative. And um, that, I think, misses a huge, huge important piece of the tradition, and that is that masculine and feminine are not social stereotypes, their internal energies that we all have, that we, if we're balanced humans, we're balancing those, that masculine feminine energy within ourselves constantly. So it's one of our beefs with that, <laughs> with the modern. So, well, that, and that's interesting. So I, I have to actually admit my ignorance and, and say that uh, most of my, my th- my knowledge on the topic of how women are treated in, in Eastern practices and Eastern religions comes from a Western view of that stuff. So I do have to plead my ignorance on that. But Us too. I mean, we're Westerners, and this is something we talk about in some of our workshops is uh, you know, cultural appropriation and how, how do we negotiate as Westerners with a tradition that is not of our culture. So yeah, we're Westerners too <laughs> and trying to in- interpret this the best we can to serve our culture. So at the at the risk of uh, going from jumping from talking about feminine to talking about more masculine practices, one thing I, I was very curious about, uh, and we had brushed on earlier, was you talking about this idea of you know male full body orgasms and, and separating the concept of orgasm from ejaculation when it comes to men, and that's an incredibly interesting topic that I'm sure you guys must get a ton of questions about. And I was wondering if you could talk a little more about that idea and about how that's put into practice as well. Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing that, and the first obstacle that I think that a lot of people over this, having this conversation is recognizing that it's possible, right? Because we're kind of conditioned to think that ejaculation and orgasm are the same thing. The reality is that they're, they're not. I mean, if you have... Uh, you can have an ejaculatory experience with no orgasmic sensations, right? Yes. Uh, wet dreams can be that. Premature ejaculation often has that component to it. So there's just not a whole lot of feeling attached to it. 
Forced orgasm. Yeah, ruin, ruin, ruined orgasms in BDSM. Yeah, Cassie's <laughs> over here smirking. Yeah. We can make you come without orgasming. <laughs> so if you can say, well, you can ejaculate without having an orgasm, the, the opposite is also true. You can orgasm without ejaculating. And once you realize that, you can start to separate out the sensations. And going back to what I was saying earlier, if you think of it as an energy and you go to the very edge, or if you do, you know, you can think of it as edging and just edging for a long time and pulling that, that sensation and everything back into your body without the ejaculation. And for your listeners who don't may not know the term, edging just means going to the brink of the orgasmic response and then stopping your st stimulation until your body relaxes and calms down a little bit and then bring your body arousal back up to dance around that edge. And um, some people like that just as a sexual practice um, and other people use it as a tool to learn how to have non-ejaculatory orgasms that Marcus uh, talking about. Um, also, that said, we've run into some people that made it a rule. So they every time they have sex, they refuse to ejaculate. And um, so then it becomes a dogma, not a tool. And um, they can suffer uh, some medical issues, um, erection difficulties, because they're so determined not to come that if you don't get an erection, you're not going to come and you're safe and you've retained your life energy. And um, partners report some sort of like, I wish, I wish my partner would just give in and just be uh, joyful with abandonment. And I, it's like they're always in control somehow. And, not not yeah, in a good way. <laughs> that, that, that also, the, the kind of, you know, Taoism and some forms of, of Ayurveda and some tantric groups, there, there's this emphasis on non-ejaculatory sex for men. And this is one area where that, that was not part of our training. And there's good medical research on frequent ejaculation as being uh, very healthy. So it's this idea of, you know, retaining the life force and don't come and all of that, that that some people may hear, we, we totally don't advocate. Yeah, so so approaching it from a non, say non-woo perspective, maybe not the thing, but not, not from that perspective, what are some of the benefits of learning to orgasm without ejaculating? Well, you, you sometimes can learn how to prolong your sexual experiences. Sometimes people complain they're over a little quicker than they want, so that's one thing. <laughs> I also found that in learning to do this, it made my, my ejaculatory orgasms a lot more intense and a lot longer lasting. Because I'm, as I'm working with the energy, there's the, the ejaculation and then there's an orgasm that can go on for a lot longer after, even after the ejaculation is over. And I can have orgasms before I ejaculate too. So it's a, it's a different type of orgasmic experience, but it's no less, no less real for being so. And often, often we find in students is just for them to be introduced to this concept is enough for them to like figure it out <laughs> on their own. And so, you know, it's not like, oh gosh, I need to learn that from somebody. I think just understanding that it's possible can really open up a lot of possibilities. Yeah. And I've, so I've, 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 uh, 
experiment with this a little myself. I, I, I do find it interesting that you said, you know, because some people don't really acknowledge it when they talk about this, but they are, they are two very different kinds of experiences, uh, orgasming with ejaculation without. Yeah. Um, even though you can do the one without the other, it's very different. They're very different experiences. And the other thing, you know, that I'll, I'll just say from that I've found to be nice from this, from a, a point of view of, of when you do it is, um, you know, not just necessarily prolonging your sexual experience during that, uh, that encounter, but it also, you know, you don't really have the refractory period behind it. So you don't get that kind of drop off in, in sexual desire that you do after sex when you ejaculate sometimes. So, you know, going on throughout the day afterwards or whatever the case may be, um, you know, you can kind of keep that, that level of arousal that you had, which is nice a lot of times. Yeah. And you can tap into that, uh, retaining that kind of energetic feeling just by uh, circulating the energy and having a few energetic orgasms prior to ejaculatory. So, you know, like you can move into an ejaculatory orgasm and still retain that energized feeling. So where could people find some resources on, on this subject? Specifically. Yeah, this, this specific subject. Well, our three Tantra books are Great Sex Made Simple, which is probably the, the really beginner-friendliest book. Uh, Tantra for Erotic Empowerment, which is a workbook uh, with a lot of exercises. Um, and then The Essence of Tantric Sexuality is our most esoteric for those who maybe have a, a good bit of yoga background, for yeah, example. We find uh, that a lot of people, well, you find it also in the BDSM community. A lot of people are into yoga too, or yoga instructors. And um, that book really works for people that have background in that or martial arts and things. All of our books have won literary awards. And I think our top winner is Great Sex Made Simple. Yeah. And um, believe it or not, every chapter is 600 to 800 words. It's very, very succinct. And you just keep it by your bed and crack it open, read a chapter to each other or, you know, and then try on that practice that night, see what it's like. Yeah, it's in a kind of tip format. So it's it's very easy to use, user-friendly. But we also have, uh, there's a lot of pretty esoteric stuff hidden in there, if you know what to look <laughs> yeah, for. Yeah, we always add that stuff. So uh, those books are available on our website, www.michaelsandjohnson.com. And uh, also uh, any any bookstore or your independent bookstore could order it for you. Okay, awesome. So we'll talk a little bit more about resources and stuff at the end. But that kind of brings me to a question I had. So you started talking about yoga. And for those that are a little bit more experienced, so I'm going to ask you a few questions um, around some of the bigger myths that I think a lot of people have, which the first one is, do you have to be super in shape and flexible to be able to do any kind of tantric uh, practices? No, um, that's, that's kind of where people get the sort of Tantra and Kama Sutra a little mixed up. So Kama Sutra being a sex manual and a lot of emphasis is on positions and so forth. That's not really super important in, in Tantra. Yeah, it's good to be fit and flexible, but it's much more about your mentality and your, your, your approach. I would say even more so that it's, it's really more valuable to the elderly community because it helps you expand your sense of uh, sexual energy in the body. And if uh, you ever reach a state in life where your health falters or your body changes in ways that you can't have sex 
the sex you had in your 20s and 30s, through tantric practices, you can learn to have sex in new and fun ways that uh, don't require uh, some physical, (laughs) some certain types of physical activity. Cool. And as far as earlier, you were talking about sort of you don't have to have marathon sex. So I wanted to bring that back up because I think that's a big thing that people tend to think you have to do. So when you're starting out that sort of thing, how short can tantra sex be? Like, can you, can you actually really have a quickie or is it a semi quickie? Um, as, as our girlfriend would talk about is, uh, you know, Rigel and I tend to have a longer lovemaking section than she does. So for her, you know, a quickie is much quickier than what our quicker quickie is. So like just in the terms of like number range, can you have say a 10, 15 minute quickie while doing Tantra? You can. I think that, I think that there's a, there's an element that's really important, which is that the reason they talk about prolonging is that if you are in a state of sexual arousal for 30 minutes or more, roughly, you're flooding your system with, with all these chemicals and you're, you're, going in, you're going to be more easily going into an altered state. The shorter duration, it's harder to get there. But once you've sort of developed the skills to work energetically and to play with the edge and to build the energy and to hold it up there, 10-minute quickie, yeah, you can definitely... Yeah, and if you're, you know, really practiced with your partners, you can go zero to 60 in, you know, a minute and a half or two minutes and then really kind of hang out in that sweet space where you're starting to, you know, open the gates of your hormones and your brain, you know, for four or five minutes or seven minutes, whatever. And so initially, your quickies probably won't reach into a tantric type experience. But as you practice some of the tantric practices, you'll find that your quickies start to take on that uh, hue as well. And I think that, you know, going back to what I said earlier about awareness too, that, you know, if you're just going for the duration and you're not being conscious, you're not really doing anything but, you know, trying to set a record or, or achieve something. But if you're, doing, if you're doing a quickie and you're really fully present in that quickie, it's that's that's a lot more important than you know just how long you can last. Okay, cool. So there's another question that I have. And I think a lot of people believe, I don't know if this is a myth or not a myth, but a lot of people believe this that basically tantra can only be done between two people. Is tantra something that can be expanded beyond just two people? We've already talked about like not necessarily just being heterosexual, like you could have uh, same sex people who are in a relationship together or experience sex together. But what about multiple people? Is that something that is an option or is it just something that is sacred between two people? Absolutely. Multiples work fine. Um, It's just a shift of intention. And I think with... Uh, multiples, you're opening up to more possibility of playing around with the energetic circuitry in everyone's body. So, you know, you have more hands, more points of contacts that, you know, and more ways of connecting. And relationally, too. I mean, the, 
the at, at the core, like the, this tantric ritual that we've talked about, there would be two practitioners, each worshiping the other as an embodiment of of a divinity. But there's no reason why that can't be applied in a context that involves more than two people, right? It's the attitude that matters, not the the numbers involved. In the eye gazing practice, we've actually taught this at uh, poly conferences where you we have people pod up in groups of three and play around with with eye gazing among the triad. And and it, it really is interesting. It, it's like a paradox, you know, I can only gaze at one person at a time, but as a triad and a pod, if you still practice and shift your gaze from partner to partner, you're as a pod going to feel that connection as well. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say too, just as, as somebody who's had a significant amount of sex in groups, I will say when you're, when you're talking about say three people, cause three people's a pretty common number that I'm familiar with, but <laughs> well, no, but, but energy, more of my group sex has been three people than more than three people. I know it has. Um, I was just but, uh, but uh, when you're when you're talking about say three people or any, I'll say probably any odd number of people. You know that energy tends to have to naturally move kind of in a circle more than the give and take you can do with two people, anyways. That's just naturally how it tends to flow. So it seems like that would play in pretty well with tantra and tantric practices. Um, talking about the whole giving and receiving thing. Are there any other like myths that you think are common about Tantra that people people believe that are wrong? Um, <laughs> couple couple of the most common ones that we didn't hit. Let's let's leave it with that then. I'm, I'm going to take by your response that there's quite a few. Well, I think that um, you know the the kind of couples therapy Tantra's couples therapy um, thing is it it can be therapeutic, but it's not therapy, and I, I think that. There's a tendency to conflate those two things. We've had more than one couple come to us. Well, this is a, this is a slight departure from, from that idea, but come to us thinking that because, of, because they've had issues in the relationship, whether it's infidelity or sexual incompatibility, that somehow doing tantra is going to solve those problems, or that they're you know they they, they are not happy with their sex lives, uh, and so that there's this idea that oh well we just have to include spiritual sex and that'll just fix our sex life, and it's not really that easy, <laughs> um, generally you know, and so we we try to work closely with therapists and and recommend and refer out when. When there's that kind of those kind of issues, I, I will I will say we have an episode on the desire gap mm. between yeah, yeah uh, we do have an episode on that if people I'll put it I'll put it in the show notes uh, but we do have an episode on that if people need to need to refer to that uh, but go ahead we, yeah virtually everyone has a desire gap I mean it's it's like almost like what fun would it be is every time you wanted to have sex, your partner wanted to have, you know, like where you wouldn't get to seduce each other. Damn. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't think Cassie agrees with you on this one. <laughs> I really wish again, we were videoing this podcast. Cassie's been priceless. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a very much a character in my facial expressions. I don't have any lies. Uh, I can't, I can't tell any lies with my, my facial expressions. Uh, but what, what are some of the other, so, okay. So as far as, you know, it not being couples therapy, what are a couple of the other biggest myths about Tantra that you guys run into on a regular basis? Um, I, I think 
you know, the sex myth is a really big myth. And, I, you know, it's very hard for us because we, we have talked a lot about sex. But most tantric practitioners are, in fact, celibate. And that's something that people, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that Tibetan Buddhist monks, that's a form of Tantra. The Dalai Lama is the most famous example of a Tantric practitioner who does not do the sexual practices. So it really, the, you know, we've talked about, about sex a lot, but it really isn't that. It's, it's, sex can be a piece of it, but it doesn't have to be. Um, I think another thing related is the kind of tantric massage thing that's out there as a euphemism you often for Basically one form or another sex work, sex work. Yeah. And we, we're totally not opposed to sex work, but the idea that a certain kind of massage is tantric is, is a 20th, late 20th century invention. Well, and we're really not a fan of that because it also marginalizes, uh, you know, our rest of our brothers and sisters who are sex workers, and everybody should be legal and you know be able to do their their work. So, so yeah, so it's it's not sex work, and it's you know there's no such thing as tantric massage. There's so many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's let's do one or two more, and we'll we'll move on. <laughs> Well, sometimes we've had actually people go, well, do I have to have sex in groups? So it, it, it really, there's that myth as well. The reverse. The reverse. Huh. Yeah, that, that it has to be a, like this orgy. And it's like, no, 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 no. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> and I think maybe the one that we'll conclu- conclude with is from, a, from a, an email we got early on that's been a never-ending source of amusement to us. <laughs> And the question we received was, will Tantra fix my wife? Uh, oh. That's problematic oh. for so yeah. many reasons. Hi. Because, oh. uh, yeah, the way I want to have sex is right. The way she wants to have sex is wrong. And so fix her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's Oh, my. But I, I mean, I think also implicit in that is the kind of this sort of, you know, it's all about bigger and better orgasms or fixing my sex life. And I I think that, you know, to get a little bit woo about it, what I think Tantra can do is give you a a greater appreciation and greater awareness of where you are. But if it's not about chasing another peak experience. Okay. Um, So I'd like to, for a minute, touch on some of the, uh, you you talked a little bit about communication and Tantra earlier. I'd like to talk a little bit about maybe some of the ways that Tantra views communication or that communication is practiced in Tantra that can be helpful to people? (laughs) Well, I think what, I I don't think we can speak to how communication is practiced in Tantra per se. I think we can talk about our trip trip on communication. (laughs) Okay. That works just great. Well, communication is important. Talking is overrated and can be overrated. So um, I, that, that speaks to what I was talking about, where when conflict, sometimes their go-to is to build their case. They come up with that perfect phrase to make their point and to prove that they are right and their partner is wrong. And the second they're in that mode, they're, they're not connected and um, they're getting polarized. So that is antithetical. There's no connection in energy when you're starting to build your case. And so that's where the eye gazing practice comes in as a way of 
engaging and communicating non-verbally. And I, you know, we do think that talking is important. We we're, we need it to express well, yeah, ourselves in, in a variety of ways. You definitely have to talk about, but you can't start talking about difficult topics if you feel disconnected and out of sorts, out of harmony with your partners. It's like you can't start there. You've got to get that harmony in place. And then that topic becomes so much easier to talk about. And you can do it uh, without throwing micro punches at each other. Um, When you start out by engaging your logic mind, you start building your case, you back into your corner. And then how you build your case might throw a little punch at your partner. And then your partner's feelings get hurt. And then, you know, they can't help it, but they throw one back at you. And we just want to give people tools to avoid that kind of situation. And also, I think, you know, we, we, we tend to forget the importance of, of nonverbal cues. And one of the things that we think is very important for couples, valuable for couples or people in relationship, people having sex, is to be attuned to the nonverbal cues. Now, this doesn't mean we don't get the verbal consent and all of that, but really being aware in in an erotic space of how our partner is responding and reaction is the key to uh, to having great sexual experiences. And the same is true outside of the realm of sexuality. The more that we can be attuned to the nonverbal aspects of what's going on in our relationship, the more able we'll be to talk when when the time comes to talk. And I guarantee uh, you just give yourself you know, 10 seconds to really tune into your partner, you're going to get a lot of information then way more, way quick, more quickly than if you sat down and said, so tell me how you feel right now, blah, 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 blah. And they may not really, they're stuck in their logic mind. So I think also there's an important aspect of being able to read your partner correctly because your partner saying, because you, you said, you know, how are you doing? I'm fine. Well, your partner's sitting there saying, you know, you say, you know, what's going on with you? And they say, I'm fine. And you know that fine is not a fine. You know that it is, I've had a really, really bad day and I'm in a grouchy mood. So being able to pick up on cues that are not necessarily what is being said, I think is very helpful. But I think there's that challenge there of how do you know if you're actually reading your partner correctly? Yeah, that's always a challenge because you're dancing between, um, you know, you could be arrogantly assuming an emotional state and then projecting that onto your partner, not also not, you know, reading them. So there it's a real finesse. I think you're right. Okay, so if after after all this talk about Tantra, people are interested, um, where how do they get started? Like, what's what's a good place for them to go, books to read, things to do to get started in Tantra? Well, in addition to our books, uh, Barbara Corellis's Urban Tantra is a, is a good, you know, a good intro with a, a lot of techniques. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot more sort of exercises and stuff than, and, and very, very more kind of body focused than our stuff. And also, uh, there, there are several other people out there who teach Tantra or give certifications and give weekend workshops. And I, we just encourage your readers to examine the bio carefully, uh, see where they learned their techniques or, or if they have a lineage behind them. And um, really, 
use some discernment because there there are some maybe not so grounded people out there doing this work. So okay, and we'll we'll put a link to Urban Tantra, but definitely to your guys' books. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna once again talk about how highly tantraferotic empowerment comes recommended in it's the show notes in our coffee table. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> have a glass coffee table with a bunch of sex books in it. Actually, yes, you're so, you're one of the eight books that we have in our coffee table. So. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Um, but yeah, so well, that's, that's Michaels and Johnson.com. And I'll also link it in the show notes. This is going to be in the show notes at a touch of flavor.com forward slash zero two seven. All right, guys. Well, so are you guys ready for the speed round? Yeah, sure. All right. So when we have multiple people, we sort of switch it up a little bit where we kind of do every other person. Um, so Pick who wants to start. start the first yeah. Question. So one of you go gets the first question, the second question. But if you want, if there's a question that I'm asking that you really want to jump in anyway, jump in. just go ahead and jump in. So I'm going to start with a question, whoever wants to answer, and then I'm going to keep going. So the, but the idea is to try to get them done in about a minute. If you go a little over, it's okay. And it's but, t- about 10 questions. So that gives you an idea of how fast to answer. <laughs> do, we, do we get a prize or... <laughs> Uh, do we get someone's voice on our answering machine or something? <laughs> I don't, Not yet. yet. Yeah. But I guess that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we did have somebody who told us they were going to win at this, and we were kind of like, we don't know how, but have at it. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I think he actually did win it as far as... Getting it done in the right amount, amount of time. time. Yeah. All right. So whoever's going first, what is something you're not very good at? Anything that involves uh, power tools. So tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. It's true that almost no one agrees on. Um, oh, you've stumped me. Oh, geez. True. Something you think is true that nobody agrees with you on. Uh, it, it's harsh uh, that there's way too many people in the world. Okay. Best piece of relationship advice you've ever received. I think from our teacher, don't let your work overtake your your relationship what are three things you couldn't live without uh my cats um popcorn um well mark but with endless supply of lube (laughs) (laughs) all right so mark what turns you on lots of things uh patricia (laughs) um good answer i i i'm i erotic energy um, I'm really like, uh, I really like group erotic energy, big turn on. What's a book you would recommend for our listeners? Besides the ones you've already said. Besides the ones we already said, uh, the relationship handbook by Pransky. Cool. And what's your biggest fear? Hmm. That Donald Trump will serve a second term. <laughs> <sighs> what's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? It could be sexual or non-sexual. I took part in the Rutgers University study of uh, or female orgasm in an fMRI. All right. I want both of you to answer this one. Who is your movie star or TV crush? Current or ever? Ever. And I, I'd like both of you to answer it because this is one of my favorite ones. Faye Dunaway and Little Big Man when I was 12. Oh. <laughs> 
Uh, Sybil Shepherd and Ryan O'Neill when in the Heartbreak Kid when I was eight, I think I was like, oh. All right, what's something you guys are working on right now that you'd like our listeners to know about? I am forming a uh, center for reptile and amphibian conservation. I'm passionate about turtles and native turtles of New York. And I'm actively involved in searching for the ivory-billed woodpecker, which is a very controversial bird, uh, one of the rarest birds in the world, if it still exists. That's www.projectcoyoteibwo.com to read about that work. So we're kind of pursuing our, our individual outdoor nature interests right now. That's, that's our, our current big focus. Okay, and that's really cool. I'm going to have to talk to you guys more about that while we're not podcasting. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you guys? So at our website, uh, michelsonjohnson.com, uh, we have slowed down our public appearances. So uh, not we're not out there hitting the road as much. We really worked really hard for over 15 years. So but if, if your listeners have any specific questions, um, they're welcome to write us at info at tantrapm.com. That's uh, our old URL, tantra, P as in Patricia, M as in Mark.com. I've, uh, <laughs> I've got to ask those. You talked about this Rutgers fMRI. <laughs> I've got to ask a little more about that. That has to have just been incredibly non-sexy. I'm just, I'm so curious now if you, if you, if you, if you'd be willing to tell me a little bit more about that. I'm so curious about that. We actually both do. Well, yeah, Mark, Mark, we've been, geez, I've been in three times and Mark's been in once. Once, but he he was with me. Well, he was with me all of those three times. But then we did the first partnered orgasm, uh, where Mark was stimulating me manually while I was in the fMRI. They wanted to see if that changed how the orgasm represented in the brain. That was really awkward. <laughs> I was. It sounds like the whole thing had to be kind of awkward. Yeah, I don't. How know. did they set that up? Like. So the first time I was in, um, we it was I was in over two and a half hours, and um, it's I have claustrophilia. I really love being um, in small spaces. Uh, I like being constrained or you know in tight small spaces. So, um, but I we would stimulate and stop, and it, it imagine stimulation and stops. So it was partially funded by the Christopher Reeve Foundation to understand the impacts of spinal injury and imagination if they could still light up the parts of the brain by imagining stimulation of parts of the body that no longer have nerve react you know connection and um it does work that's the fascinating part um which is why you know it's a tool for people who are aging or encountering medical issues but I got to the end and they were like, okay, we're done. We just want you to have one orgasm. You can do stimulate yourself, whatever you want. You can think whatever you want, you know, just give us one more orgasm. And I'm like, okay, uh, so I'm on the beach and now, uh, shit, that's not working. Okay. Uh, I, I, I walk past the locker room and some guy pulls me in and I'm like, oh shit, that's not working. And I'm like, you're in a lab. <laughs> 
and there's a bunch of people and they're watching monitors and they <laughs> need you to come and they want you to come hard and long. And they, and I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> see what Josh was sitting here being like, it's, it's awkward. I'm like, no, I would totally get off. I'm an expeditionist. I love having sex in places that people can see me. So like, they would not even get on the machine before I was orgasming in that situation. I, we have this ongoing joke that whenever Cassie talks about sex, I have to cut her levels down like two notches. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. The weird thing about this, though, is that, Cassie, you, you wouldn't have been visible. The only Your feet are sticking out of the machine, and that's all they could see. Yeah, but they see your brain. <laughs> they see your brain. <laughs> They can see my brain. <laughs> They're looking at your brain. <laughs> That's amazing. And you know, it's it's funny because I feel like I feel like science is always rushing to catch up with what people already know about sexuality, you know, like because I know plenty of people who have orgasms doing things to them that is not really stimulating them. Yeah. You know, I've gotten off hitting you before. You you got off hitting me. You gotten off strap oning people with strap ons yeah. that provide you no stimulation yes. with pants on. Like yes. you, yeah. Well, I wouldn't say no stimulation. There's some rubbing That's, there, yeah. a little bit. But yeah. yes, That's, I feel like science is always rushing to catch up. Though, <laughs> or like that whole article that came out a couple of years ago about how the G spot's not real and Cassie's just walking around the house going, "They could have saved thousands of dollars if they just went out and figured a check." Like it's like, like, <laughs> it's like I was like, they did all this research to figure out that yes, there is no. A, they figured out there was no G spot. That there was no. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That there is no G spot, and I'm like, no. Yes. Studying cadavers, right? I've never found one on a cadaver either, so <laughs> not really looked though. <laughs> you know, just, just, just. If it works, it works, man. Just do it. Like I don't understand. <laughs> so you should look it up. You should look up the Rutgers and female orgasm. There's a videotape that shows the a brain. Um, how it lights up, and it is pretty freaking spectacular. The whole thing goes. I'm I'm going to put that shit in the show. Yeah. Woman's brain while having an orgasm. Is this your brain? I have no idea, you know. Um you don't recognize it? I don't recognize my brain. Uh yeah. I don't have any. But they it's it's really wild because they make you wear this like plastic mask thing because you you have to keep you your head your in head. It's really difficult. Oh god. Yeah. Yeah, any any like three millimeter wrecks the whole imagery. So you really, it's surreal. It's really a talk about. You'd have to strap me down like. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would I would have to be like completely and utterly like made non-mobile at all because staying still during an orgasm is not really my forte. <laughs> well, the rest of your body, they, they make it so the rest of you can move, but your head has to be kept completely still. But it's very awkward. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. It's been a blast. <laughs> Thanks fun. for having us. <laughs> All right, guys, I'm hoping you enjoyed that as much as we did. If you did, go ahead, subscribe to the show. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play. We're on pretty much everything except Spotify right now. That way you don't miss our next amazing interview. And we'll see you next week. 
Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1.